Hi, this is Sophia Ruan Goucher, author of A to Z of Detoxing, the ultimate guide to reducing our toxic exposures, and host of this Practical Non-Toxic Living podcast. Welcome. I'm really excited to share this podcast with you. With the abundance of information on COVID-19, I found it hard to know how to balance and prioritize recommendations into my life. As a wife, mother of three young kids, and as someone who probably was sick with COVID-19, I couldn't implement all recommendations, like isolating myself from my family. I most likely got sick with COVID-19 in early March. I was sick for over two weeks, I haven't yet been tested for COVID-19, but I was in frequent touch with my doctor. He felt comfortable that I would recover successfully at home. Being in New York City, where the demand for tests of COVID-19 has been much greater than the supply of tests, my doctor thought it wasn't worth testing me, and I agreed. Today, I am almost fully recovered. The only thing not recovered is that I lost my sense of smell, and that hasn't returned yet. While sick and wondering whether I should use more toxic cleaning products and disinfecting products to protect my family from COVID-19, I wondered whether the toxic ingredients in many of the recommended cleaning and disinfecting products for COVID-19 was worthwhile. I was open to using them, but I had questions. While I appreciated the severe and sometimes fatal outcomes in some people infected with COVID-19, I wondered whether the more toxic cleaning products might make some people more vulnerable because some of these cleaning products can adversely affect the respiratory system, which COVID-19 seems to target. I also wondered about the more chronic electromagnetic field exposures that many people are experiencing at home. Could all the wireless devices being used at home compromise some people's immune response to COVID-19? There's no one more perfect than Dr. David Carpenter to ponder this with. He is the guest for this podcast and is an incredible public health physician that you should know. We recorded this conversation last Friday, which was April 3rd, 2020, and I hope you find it reassuring and empowering. We explore the four simple but impactful ways you can optimize your resiliency against COVID-19. It turns out these four simple tips are also a healthy approach towards your exposures to toxic chemicals, heavy metals, and electromagnetic fields. They're so simple. Dr. Carpenter simplifies the complex variables that influence our immune response. He gives us a 101 on the cytokine storm that may explain why some young people without known underlying conditions have suffered severe or fatal outcomes. He talks about how our immune response can be suppressed or stimulated by chemicals, heavy metals, and our man-made electromagnetic fields or EMFs. There are also many theories circulating online about whether our man-made environmental exposures like 5G contributed to the novel coronavirus, and Dr. Carpenter shares his uniquely informed views on this. We also talk about whether climate change will make infectious diseases more common. Does air pollution increase our risks? And how to think about diet, cleaning, and other daily routines in our new normal with COVID-19 and maybe future pandemics. 
While our COVID-19 pandemic has created many tragedies and heartaches, it is also revealing unique opportunities to adjust our culture, society, and individual choices to optimize our future. Two things I'm grateful for are the enlightened appreciation for one, how interconnected we humans, animals, and the planet are, and two, for our healthcare professionals. COVID-19 reminds us that public health is essential for a healthy society and economy, and that individual choices matter as much as macro-level policies. So now is an excellent time to reintroduce Dr. Carpenter and his history of outstanding contributions to the pioneering science on how public health, including children's health, are or may be influenced by toxic chemicals, heavy metals, and our man-made electromagnetic fields. Dr. Carpenter and I actually recorded two other podcasts. You can listen to podcast episode 15 to listen to our conversation titled Headaches, Nausea, and Fatigue, Might You Be Electro-Hypersensitive, and podcast episode 14, which is titled Insights on Diet, Fracking, Drinking Water, and Vaccines. It's hard to describe Dr. Carpenter's career succinctly because it is dynamic and very distinguished. I'm gonna take a few minutes to share some highlights so that you have more background and context from which to appreciate his insights on how to frame our daily exposures to toxic chemicals, heavy metals, and man-made EMFs amongst the broader concerns of infectious diseases. And if there was ever a time to celebrate Dr. Carpenter, it is now. Dr. Carpenter is a world-renowned research physician, and he has been earning impressive distinctions from when he was an undergrad at Harvard University, where he graduated magna cum laude. He then graduated cum laude from Harvard Medical School. During his time there, he was awarded the Leon Resnick Prize for the medical school graduate showing promise in research. Dr. Carpenter would continue this level of achievement and recognition throughout his career. In the podcast show notes at www.nontoxicliving.tips, you can learn more. But to understand Dr. Carpenter's interdisciplinary perspective, I want to highlight his current role. Since 2001, he has been the director of the Institute for Health and the Environment at the University of SUNY Albany in upstate New York. The Institute is a collaborating center of the World Health Organization. In his position as director of the Institute for Health and the Environment, Dr. Carpenter is responsible for promoting interdisciplinary research and grants relating to health and the environment. He works with those with research interests in environmental health, environmental sciences, environmental policy, environmental law, ecology, hazardous waste management, occupational health, risk assessment, risk management, risk communication, and the social and psychological aspects of environmental pollution. Dr. Carpenter has more than 435 peer-reviewed publications, six books, and 50 reviews and book chapters to his credit. Dr. Carpenter is also Professor of Environmental Health Sciences and Biomedical Sciences in the School of Public Health at the University of Albany. He has worked with New York State's Department of Health in Albany, New York, on the New York State Power Lines Project, a $5 million study of the health effects from power line frequency electromagnetic fields. One finding supported by this program confirmed an elevation in rates of childhood leukemia among children living in homes with elevated magnetic fields. After completion of the New York State Power Lines project, he became the spokesperson for New York State on the issue of human health effects of EMFs. 
In his capacity, he has served on several state and national committees on EMF issues. He has co-edited two books on EMFs and has served as the co-editor of the Bioinitiative Report, a landmark summary on what the science has found from studies on how EMFs may affect our biology. The Bioinitiative 2012 report was prepared by 29 authors from 10 countries, including 10 holding medical degrees and 21 PhDs. The authors reviewed over 1,800 studies on bioeffects and adverse health effects of electromagnetic fields and wireless technologies. Dr. Carpenter was invited to testify before the President's Cancer Panel on the issue of EMF exposure in cancer. The President's Cancer Panel advises the U.S. President on high-priority issues in cancer. I'm going to wrap this up, but please bear with me as I think it helps give more credence to the conversation you're about to hear, including the really simple and practical tips that he shares. During my eight years of research for my book, A to Z of Detoxing, The Ultimate Guide to Reducing Our Toxic Exposures, I reviewed hundreds of research reports. Whenever I encountered testimonies or reports by Dr. Carpenter, I always sighed relief that an informed researcher and public health physician was advocating for us and also for our children. Children have unique vulnerabilities. Their unique vulnerabilities haven't historically been given such informed voice, but Dr. Carpenter has been working to improve our environmental exposures and with special advocacy for our children. Examples of what his research has explored, just to give you an idea of how it relates to chronic health issues, include one, how exposures to persistent organic pollutants influence our risk of diabetes, cardiovascular disease, and hypertension. Two, how environmental contaminants influence cognitive and behavioral effects on children, like their IQ or tendency for ADHD, and on older adults, like on dementia, Parkinson's disease, and ALS. Three, how ionizing and non-ionizing radiation from things like our cell phones and Wi-Fi routers affect our biology. And four, how air pollution may affect respiratory and cardiovascular function. Phew, sorry that was long, but again, I wanted to take this opportunity to highlight a special public health advocate, and I hope that background helps you enjoy our conversation and his recommendations even more. Just a heads up, the sound quality is not great, especially when I speak. We recorded our podcast while my three kids were using internet bandwidth for school on Zoom, and my husband was working on Zoom too. And you'll hear my phone ring at one point too, but even with these distractions, this podcast should be helpful and interesting. Hi, Hi David. There. How are you? I'm well, thank you. I'm at home. Hope you and your family are well. Yes, Good. we're doing fine. I'm recovering. Good. <laughs> yes, you told me you Good. were infected. That's uh, well. I'm glad you're recovering. If you're at this stage of the game, you're yeah. probably not going to be hospitalized. Yeah, it's been interesting. Three kids and my husband at home, so I definitely worry about their exposures. But it's kind of too late, uh, as I was learning more about wearing a mask at home and maybe quarantining myself. It was kind of too late. So I'm sure they'll be fine, but the news reports are alarming. 
morning. Um, but thank you so much for making the time to talk to me. I've been really, really interested in your perspective on what you're seeing. You have the most amazing background with epidemiology is influenced by toxic chemicals, heavy metals, and the electromagnetic fields from our technologies. Well, let me start just by talking about COVID-19. We've had uh, pandemics before over the course of history. Most of them have been viral. Uh, the one exception was probably the plague, which was a bacterium. But we know that viruses mutate, and when they mutate, they turn into agents for which nobody has immunity because they're brand new. And there really are very few drugs that are effective against viral diseases, unlike uh, antibiotics that work against bacterial diseases. So the the major root of protection of humans is vaccination. But when a new virus appears, we don't have a vaccine, and it takes a period of time to develop a vaccine. And obviously, we have vaccine development for COVID-19 as a major priority around the world. The fact is that we haven't had a pandemic like this for a long time. There have been a number of pandemics throughout history. Probably the one that's most similar to the COVID-19 one is the uh, 19... 18 Spanish flu. Nobody's quite sure exactly what the viral agent was. It clearly was a viral disease. The difference between the mortality we see now and what happened then is that during that epidemic, it was primarily young, healthy people that died. Whereas with COVID-19, it appears to be more older people and people with pre-existing conditions. But we're also beginning to get reports that there is a, a syndrome called a cytokine storm, which is thought to have been the major cause of death during the 1918 pandemic. And this is when the body's immune system overreacts to the infection and causes a generation of pro-inflammatory cytokines that can damage organ systems and, and lead to death even in a, a younger person that has, if anything, a too active immune system. So we are seeing some of that with COVID-19 as well. However, the majority of the deaths have and been- And is that, are the cytokines, I'm sorry to interrupt, but I'm just wondering for those who maybe have autoimmune issues, are the cytokines part of what goes on with autoimmune issues? Yes, they are. The cytokines are released from a variety of lymphocytes, and there are a huge number of different cytokines. Some of them are good, some of them are not so good. And we know that these are basically like the neurotransmitters in the immune system. And they have very important functions, but like many things that are important, if they get out of whack, they then can cause disease. So there's some cytokines that are basically anti-inflammatory that are very important for normal disease, a normal disease prevention. And then there are some that are pro-inflammatory that will trigger things like autoimmune disease and where they damage the body's own structure. And that appears to be what the cytokine storm is, which we are seeing to some degree with COVID-19, but it was really thought to be the major cause of death in the Spanish flu epidemic in 1918. I think the point, though, is that when you have the emergence of a new virus, nobody has immunity, and therefore we are all vulnerable to infection, and the degree of infection and degree of transmission does vary. Now, what we apparently had in 1918 and what we certainly have now is that not everybody that's infected 
show symptoms of the disease. And that's been a real problem with COVID-19 because it means that we have people that are quite healthy appearing and feeling walking along the street and in crowds and transmitting the infection to other people, many of whom then go on to develop symptoms and some, in some cases, very serious symptoms. I know we're learning more every day. And more recently, I think it was maybe last week or the week before, we realized that maybe one symptom might be the loss of smell and taste. This week, I started reading the reports of the brain being inflamed, and it might increase the risks of cardiac issues. Um, I think I just saw that yesterday. And that was particularly interesting to me because two weeks ago when I started to get sick and I was confused about what I had because I didn't have fever, I didn't have a cough, but my brain felt very inflamed. My lungs felt inflamed, but if it weren't the pandemic, in the context of a pandemic, I really wouldn't have worried. And there were times my brain felt so inflamed, I thought, how could this not be causing brain damage? And then later, I realized I couldn't smell. I'm wondering if you have any thoughts on how COVID-19 could affect the brain, the heart, the nervous system because that's like a newer development that's just emerging in the news. Yes, I also saw the article yesterday in the Times on the brain infection and where some people, fortunately a very small number of people, get a real encephalitis, which can be fatal. And that is very common with a number of other viral diseases. We know a number of viral diseases that are called encephalitis that affect primarily the brain and have various serious consequences. Fortunately, COVID-19 doesn't appear to do that that often, but it seems to be a very common finding that loss of smell and taste are early symptoms of infection, as you personally have experienced, even before the pneumonia that is so common. Well, I think one has to recognize that viruses, they get in the body, they may enter through the lungs, but viruses can be transported everywhere to every organ system, including the brain, and therefore the appearance of the disease can be different in different people. In most people with COVID-19, it presents as a pneumonia. And most of those people that, that succumb to the disease do so because the lungs no longer can absorb the oxygen that's necessary for sustaining life. But other people are, are uh, suffering from brain disease, apparently a few cases where there's clear evidence of liver and kidney damage. Uh, now, the question is whether that's primary damage of those organs of the virus or whether it's damage to those organs because of the lack of adequate oxygen because of the problems in the lung. But we know that viruses travel throughout the body, so it should not be surprising that in different people, the disease would appear in, in different ways. So I'd love to get your thoughts on people who are homebound and are doing what they're told to do by the health officials. I feel like there are additional simple things they can do to help boost their recovery efforts or prevention efforts. There are many things that affect our immune system. And clearly the immune system being able to function normally and healthily is absolutely critical to any infection. 
Now, there are many chemicals that suppress immune system function. And the ones that I've been involved in study primarily are organic chemicals. The ones we know the most about are those persistent chemicals like the chlorinated pesticides and DDT and dioxin and PCBs. And these all suppress normal immune system function. It's been studied primarily in children, but children that have high concentrations of these chemicals in their body have more ear infections, they have more respiratory infections, and when when they get sick, they are sick for a long period of time. Uh, so it makes every good sense that if a person is exposed to chemicals that suppress the immune system, they're going to be more vulnerable. Now, they probably are not going to be any more vulnerable to a new virus that's never been around before because nobody has immunity to that. However, when they are infected, our immune system gets mobilized and if your immune system is already suppressed, for example, we know that kids that are exposed to high concentrations of PCBs and dioxins, they don't respond as well to immunization. So their body can't develop antibodies nearly as well as somebody that doesn't have these, these uh, chemicals. Now, on the other hand, there's some other chemicals, and primarily these are metals that stimulate the immune system. And there is concern that that some of these metals increase the risk of autoimmune disease. They increase the risk of developing allergies and dermatitis and things like that. So uh, they, if anything, should actually facilitate protection against a, a new viral disease. You ask about electromagnetic fields, and this is a very important area. There are a few reports that electromagnetic fields affect the immune system. I don't find that evidence very convincing at all. I think what is convincing is that a whole variety of things, like sleep, which you mentioned, and also like anxiety, if you're anxious and nervous, and if you don't get enough sleep, these suppress your immune system function. A number of people are so anxious about the electromagnetic fields, uh, I think this does affect their immune system. Now, a number of people become very ill upon exposure to electromagnetic fields and develop this syndrome of electrohypersensitivity, where they have headaches, they are fatigued, they uh, get physically ill uh, if they're exposed to high magnetic fields. And it is not surprising at all to me that under those circumstances, their immune system is suppressed. But whether it's due to the electromagnetic fields or rather due to their feeling of illness and their anxiety, my suspicion is that it's more the latter than the direct effects of the electromagnetic fields. But I think the, the issues that you're suggesting are very, very important. We need to have adequate sleep. We need to be as unanxious as uh, as possible the more one worries about anything the more suppressed one's immune system is it is amazing this connection between the brain and where anxiety is processed and the immune system very tightly linked so anything that makes one unhappy when uh people that grieve when a close relative dies, 
we have strong documentation that their, their immune system is suppressed. And that makes them more vulnerable to infection, more vulnerable to death, in fact. Uh, and, and one sees this quite often, that, that intense grief can lead to uh, early death in the, in the survivors. And that is almost certainly this connection between the brain and how one feels and how your immune system functions. Now, in times like this, of course, people are very anxious. And that's a very bad sign in terms of people having a healthy immune system because anxiety is not good for your immune system. What does the science reveal about how the electromagnetic fields may physically compromise someone's sleep quality? Well, there's, there's pretty good evidence that people exposed to high radio frequency fields don't sleep well. And the explanation for that is a little complicated. I don't think we know exactly why that is. Most of the effects of electromagnetic field exposure appear to be mediated by generation of reactive oxygen species. This is another kind of communicator within the body. These are not cytokines that we were talking about earlier, but these are uh, reactive chemicals that are formed. They're part of normal metabolism. They are actually formed when our mitochondria generate energy, but they are also components of many, many different diseases and are damaging to the body. It's actually believed that the health effects that occur with aging are primarily a result of a lifelong accumulation of the damages caused by these reactive oxygen species. There's very good evidence that individuals that suffer from electrohypersensitivity have higher levels of these reactive oxygen species than people that don't have that syndrome. And there's some evidence that reactive oxygen species are are generated even during sleep in people that are, you know, that keep their active cell phone under their pillow. Now, one complication from this is that people that are so concerned that they might miss a call that they keep an active cell phone next to them when they sleep, that itself can interfere with their sleep. So it's it's wise, number one, turn off your cell phone. It doesn't matter if someone tries to call you in the middle of the night. You don't need to get that call. Turn off the Wi-Fi. For most people, Wi-Fi probably doesn't interfere with sleep all that much, but there's certainly some evidence that it does in many people, and it's just an added distraction that you don't need. My suspicion is that most of the effects of electromagnetic fields on the immune system are indirect rather than direct. But that doesn't mean that they're insignificant. If you're anxious, if your sleep is disrupted, these are all factors that will contribute to suppression of immune system function. I want to give you an opportunity to address a lot of the chatter online about electromagnetic fields having a contributing factor to COVID-19. Well, I think that's total nonsense. As I've said in response to some of these things that have been appearing on emails and on the internet. There's absolutely no evidence that electromagnetic fields are related to COVID-19. Now, let me give an example. This was quite a few years ago, probably 20 or 30 years ago, but I was organizing a meeting in Manila on children's environmental health. And one of the concerns was asthma because uh, 
there was a different pattern of asthma in Asia from what we had seen here in the U.S. In that in that time, I think this was around 2000, there were high rates of asthma in uh, Japan, in Hong Kong, in Singapore, but very low rates in a lot of other Asian countries. And an epidemiologist from Hong Kong gave a talk, and I'll never forget the talk. He said, you can predict the incidence of asthma based on how many McDonald's restaurants are in a country. And what he was saying is that McDonald's only had restaurants in relatively high-income countries that where people could afford to go and buy a Big Mac. And they weren't yet in the poorer countries because there was just no future there. And asthma was also more common in high-income countries. That didn't mean that McDonald's caused asthma. It just was that there were other factors that made that explanation. Now, some of these people who I think are a little off the deep end are arguing that because Wuhan had rollout of 5G, that that's what caused the COVID-19 epidemic. There's just no basis for that. Absolutely none. That's not scientific. There's, there's no evidence that that is the case. Just because Wuhan had high 5G, a lot of other places in China had 5G too, and, and COVID-19 didn't originate there. There's just no association whatsoever, in my judgment, at least at this point of time, based on there being a lack of any scientific evidence. Thank you for addressing that. Going back to what you're saying earlier about you having spent a lot of time looking at PCBs and dioxins, I believe was dioxins or DDT were immunosuppressants, or I don't know if all three are, but for the everyday person, how that's relevant to them is that they tend to be in our diet to more animal proteins, like things that are higher on the food chain. So given that, would you recommend people consider a more plant-based diet if they're looking for ways to use their diet to optimize their immune system? Well, diet is important, but I think uh, what's really important there is balance. Now, it's true that the PCBs and the dioxins tend to be in all animal fats, and animal fat isn't good for you no matter what chemical is in it because too much fat is clearly a cause of cardiovascular disease and so forth. But on the other hand, if you have a plant-based diet, there are often huge amounts of pesticides on the plants. A case in point, a number of years ago when we were starting our PCB studies, a colleague of mine who ran a PCB laboratory and I both had a young child. They were actually born just a few days apart. And my colleague Brian didn't want his wife to breastfeed his child because he knew there were a lot of PCBs in breast milk. And I'm a public health person. I knew breastfeeding was very important. So his child was not breastfed. Mine was. And we tested their urine for PCB metabolites when they were one year old with the expectation that my son would have much higher ones than his son. Well, they both had sky-high metabolites of PCBs and pesticides in their urine. Well, at the same time, we had a woman that was working with us that had just had a child and was breastfeeding. And we said, oh, please give us a breast milk sample. Now, she was a vegetarian. She was very health conscious. Her breast milk was absolutely full of pesticides. It didn't have very much PCBs. So, you know, I think the point is that, yes, it's very important to reduce your exposure when you can. If you can afford to buy organically born uh, raised animals and organically raised fruits and vegetables, that's good. 
Unfortunately, they're more expensive and not everybody can afford it. So this gets to be an issue of economic disparity. But what is really most important is to know where excessive exposure comes from and to do what one can to reduce that. These chemicals are so totally distributed in our food supply, there is absolutely no way you can totally avoid exposure. And therefore, using common sense and, and reason is a much more important issue than trying to avoid all exposure to animal fats. I'm wondering, about cleaning products because disinfectants have never been more popular as they are today for a good reason. And there are a list of disinfectants the EPA and CDC have listed as being effective against COVID-19. And when I looked up a few of them on the Environmental Working Group database for the hazard scores and hazard assessments, I noticed that the first few I looked up were ranked D, E, or F based on the environmental working group's scale. And some of the concerns were like asthma and respiratory issues. And it made me wonder, since a main concern with COVID-19 are our lungs, if that should be a consideration in how someone disinfects their home, because there are alternatives. And I've read a little bit about steam cleaning. I don't really know if that is effective. There are ways to disinfect with hydrogen peroxide and isopropyl alcohol, but I would love your input on how someone who already is sensitive with cleaning products, how they should balance all the information nowadays in consideration of COVID-19. Well, good question. It's absolutely true that many of the disinfection products that we're being advised to use now are known to be toxic to humans. And it's just another example of how one has to weigh cost versus benefit. It is so important to not not get extra, to get any contact with this virus that can be avoided at any cost. But there are disinfection products that are less toxic. Alcohol is one of them. Uh, it works very well to kill viruses. So I think while it's absolutely critically important that we disinfect surfaces that multiple people talk about, talk, uh, touch and so forth. For example, I, I only go into my office uh, one day a week when I have to teach from there, but there are people coming around and wiping down all the doorknobs knobs and the faucets and that sort of thing at least twice a day. And that's important. And probably for most people, that exposure is not great. But for the person that goes around and is wiping these toxic chemicals on all the knobs all day long, that can be a source of significant exposure. So when possible, choose a product that isn't toxic. Now, unfortunately, the ones that are non-toxic are sometimes not as effective as the ones that are more toxic. So it's a complicated issue. Hopefully this problem with COVID-19 will pass soon and we don't need to be so concerned about the toxicity of the disinfecting agents. Do you have thoughts on whether steam cleaning can help? Well, steam cleaning can certainly help, no question about that. Is it practical to do on repeated basis during one day? Probably not. There's still some debate about how long the virus remains viable when it's on a surface, but one should be cautious. And I think at this stage of the game, the threat of infection is probably paramount over the hazards caused by disinfecting agents. Still, one should be aware of the hazards of disinfecting agents and use ones that are as little toxic as possible to still be effective. But we we face an acute problem with, with this uh, COVID-19 infection. And the first priority has got to be reduce each of our vulnerability to being infected.
there's a video online showing the droplets that come out of our mouths when we speak and sneeze and cough and shown with like a special highly sensitive camera it was there's asian language so it came from asia and um, they, they, one thing, one simple suggestion is to open your windows and you can see that the droplets get dispersed. That seems like common sense, right? A good yes, simple thing like people can sense. do is to air out their home. Yeah, I, I have my window open right Great. next to me and, and it feels very good. And I think that the other thing that indoors, uh, there are a whole variety of contaminants that appear. You know, it used to be that all of our carpets were made of wool and natural materials. Now they're basically all made out of oil and products that emit uh, volatile organic chemicals. And, you know, then there are cooking smells. And there, there's this syndrome called sick billing syndrome, which usually results from a lack of adequate circulation, the removal of all of these things that appear in indoor air. And that's going to then include virus particles stuck onto particles and that sort of thing where droplets from someone sneezing and coughing attached to little particles in the air. So open air and ventilation is a very good thing. It's interesting to remember back in the 19th century, we had such a problem with tuberculosis. And at that time, nobody really knew what TB was was due to, but the treatment was often to send people to the country so that they could breathe the fresh air. And many people actually did recover from TB. I visited a place up in the Adirondacks here in New York where there's an old TB uh, hospital. It wasn't really a hospital. It was really a sanitarium for people to come and recover from TB by being outside in the open air. It wasn't based on much knowledge at the time, but the principle still is a good one. Being indoors more has made me wonder about infectious dose and viral load. Those are two terms that were in articles recently. Could you explain more whether people should consider those ideas and explain more what they are? Infectious dose and viral load. And are they relevant to how we live on a daily basis with our choices? Yes, uh, infectious dose but and viral assuming load. Assuming we're all homebound. <laughs> These are very relevant concepts. The concept here of viral load is that when a person is infected, you may be infected with just a few virus particles, or you may be infected with an overwhelming number of virus particles. And and that's going to be a function, you know, if you simply touch a doorknob that some person that was infected left a few virus particles, you probably are not going to get many viruses in your body. And all of the evidence appears to indicate that people that are only infected with, with a few virus particles don't have a very severe disease. Whereas people that are at a big party with a lot of infected people in a small area and then get a large viral load at the time that they're initially infected are much more likely to have a more severe disease. Now, is that evidence really rock solid? No, I don't think it is, but it is consistent with information we have from other diseases where the greater the initial load of infection, the more severe the disease will be. And in fact, for some diseases, not all viral, but with other infectious agents, it's very common that you can be infected and show no, no symptoms at all because your immune system is able to dampen the infection when there's a limited number of infections 
infectious particles, whether it be viruses or bacteria or even parasites. So it's an important concept. That's one reason why social distancing is so important. Even if someone is infected, sneezes and you're six feet away or eight feet away and you inhale a few virus particles, you may become infected, but it's unlikely you'll have severe disease. On the other hand, if you're very close to someone that's infected and you sit with them for hours on end and keep breathing in their infected particles from the air, you're much more likely to get a more severe form of the disease. Do you have thoughts or theories on why there are some young, healthy people who are experiencing very severe outcomes through COVID-19, even dying, and when there's no known underlying condition? Well, I think we're seeing that more. Because I think that unknown is really scary. Yes, it is scary. I think that the evidence is tending to show that many of these people are having what we talked about earlier, the cytokine storm, that their immune system is responding to the infection to a greater degree than is healthy. And as a result, they're damaging the organs. Uh, Some of them are dying of the pneumonia, but a number of them are also dying of the cardiovascular, the kidney, the liver failure, which is probably the cytokines that are damaging those organs rather than the virus itself. So the body's own immune system. Now, all of that is pretty much hypothesis at this stage because we don't yet have enough experience. But again, we we look back at the 1990s at the 1918 Spanish flu, and this appears to be the major mechanism that caused mortality of young people then. Certainly, some of these young people, they have real pneumonia, they're put on respirators, they don't seem to have a different disease than what's killing older people with compromised health already. But there are a variety of ways that this virus can do you in. It seems like if you have a history of smoking cigarettes or maybe vaping, that might make you more at risk of serious complications. But do you think air pollution plays a role? Well, yes, I do. It's interesting because, you know, I... I work with sort of several different communities. I work with the EMF community, and those people are all concerned about EMFs and what its relation to COVID-19 is. I work with a, a number of people that are concerned about natural gas infrastructure and air pollution coming from compressor stations and things like that. And we've just gone through a series of emails of, will living by a compressor station increase your risk of of having more severe COVID-19 infection? The short answer is that anything that adversely impacts your health, particularly your lung, is going to make the pneumonia that would come from COVID-19 infection more severe. So probably not living near a compressor station, but certainly smokers are going to be more at risk than non-smokers because they already have lung disease. Severe air pollution is a trigger for lung cancer, for COPD, for a whole variety of things. And when you have damage already to your lung, that's going to make you more vulnerable to dying of the pneumonia that's caused by COVID-19. Now, you know, I've been involved in studies in um, a number of cities in other countries where air pollution is very great. And we've looked, for example, at daily changes in the level of air pollution and then rates of hospitalization for heart disease and respiratory disease. And after a day with high air pollution, more people die than they do after days with lower air pollution. So yes, that's going to be a factor that impacts 
people and their response to COVID-19. If you do not have serious respiratory disease, however, just having air pollution is probably not going to be a big factor in relation to your response to infection. There's been a lot of study on how climate change is affecting infectious agents, the patterns, the shifting burden of disease. It made me wonder, are infectious diseases like COVID-19 or a version of you know, maybe not as, hopefully not as serious, but is it going to be part of our new normal? Given well, that some of the concerns with client, with the environment is that we have destroyed the natural habitats of wildlife and insects, and we have disrupted the ecosystems and the changing temperatures are shifting patterns of infectious diseases that maybe were more localized to tropical climates, but now that's all changing with climate change. So it just made me wonder how, you know, some of the lessons learned from COVID-19 going forward. I know it's really early and we're learning so much about COVID-19, but... Well, let me talk about climate change and vector-borne diseases in general first, and then come back to COVID-19. Climate change is going to change our susceptibility to diseases in a dramatic fashion. We don't have much malaria in the U.S. and almost all the malaria we have is people that have been in other countries where they can be infected by the malaria parasite as a result of a mosquito bite. Well, as the climate warms in the U.S., the mosquitoes that transmit malaria are going to migrate north. And it's not just malaria. We also know that already in southern U.S. there's elevations in dengue and several other mosquito-borne diseases, this is going to be the new norm. As uh, the winters are less cold, the mosquitoes that we have, the ticks that we have, the various insect vectors of disease are going to move to new areas and we're going to be much more vulnerable to a lot of these diseases that have only in the past been seen in tropical areas. That's a major concern with climate change. Now, let me go back to COVID-19. What we know about COVID-19 is that the virus probably originated in bats. Bats have a lot of coronaviruses, and it almost certainly was a bat that bit one of the animals that was found in this particular live animal market in Wuhan. So the bat bit the animal, probably a mammal. Uh, the mammal was in a cage in this live animal market. Its virus mutated enough to move into people and then spread from person to person. So. That scenario I don't think is related to climate change. It is related to people's contact with these wild animals. That's going to happen everywhere. It happens more in China where there's this habit of eating a lot of wild animals that we in most of the Western countries don't consume, but it's an, a result of the close proximity between humans and animals that was responsible for the migration. First of all, the virus had to mutate and then it migrated from animals to people. So I don't think that's related to climate change, but people can be vectors just like mosquitoes can be vectors. And in this case, it's a human to human transmission. That's the real problem. It's not an infected mosquito biting you and transmitting the disease. You've been really advocating for precautionary measures your whole career. And I remember when I, soon after I published my book, someone said to me, precaution doesn't sell. People aren't interested in taking precautionary measures. And it's been interesting to see on a nationwide basis, even globally, how people react to the data. A country within families, within marriage, varies. And you've been watching, I mean, you've been living this your whole career, trying 
trying to give voice to the science and try and convince many different organizations, including schools and government, to take some, you know, I hesitate to use the word precautionary measures because I know in some of the testimonies I've read that you've given that are online, the science is strong. But for the public, it feels like, oh, this is just a precautionary measure. And I was just wondering from your perspective, given your experience, what your reaction is to just witnessing these diverse reactions, even within our our leaders, to the data? Well, it's a very important uh, subject. And, you know, I'm a very strong believer in the precautionary principle. The precautionary principle, basically, this came from the United Nations Convention in Rio de Janeiro a number of years ago. And it basically says, when you have some scientific evidence, but it's not 100% solid, if you haven't dotted all the T's and crossed all the I's, take reasonable steps to reduce your exposure because maybe it's not proven yet, but if you have some scientific evidence, then you should make the assumption that it probably is correct and you can do things to reduce your exposure without dramatically reducing your quality of life. And that's certainly how I practice. You know, it's go back to smoking. There were years and years when the cigarette companies said, you know, smoking doesn't cause lung cancer. There was scientific evidence that smoking caused lung cancer. It took a long while before our political establishment did anything about it. Well, from my perspective, anybody that read the science would not have waited for politicians to advise people not to smoke. Same thing with safe sex for a whole variety of reasons, for diseases, for unwanted pregnancies. Practicing same safe sex just only makes sense. And I think now everybody accepts the fact that, that this should have been done by everybody long time ago because there was scientific evidence. Now, there's a difference between how politicians act and how scientists act. We've seen this played out so clearly over the last couple of months with the Trump administration being focused primarily on the stock market and in the Dow Jones average and ignoring the scientific evidence. And finally, now they're listening to the public health officials who are trying to explain to the public that, you know, this is a very serious pandemic. And there are a huge number of people that are dying, and there are more that are going to be dying. And don't just ignore the science for the sake of the economy. You're balancing human health against economics. And from the point of view of people like me, a public health physician, protecting human health is always should be the priority. What I would encourage people uh, is to pay less attention to the scuttlebutt on uh, uh, non-scientific sources of information, of which there's just this huge amount right now, and look to scientific studies incredible reports of scientific studies to get your information. And I think credible newspapers are a good source. Uh, certain uh, television stations are not a good source. Others are uh, a good source. I, I think our, our public television is a responsible place to get your news. There may be other sources that are predominantly left or predominantly right that uh, where the public may be less uh, able to judge for themselves what is the truth. But we should be making our decisions based on the hard scientific evidence on all of these issues. Do you feel comfortable sharing where you get your news? 
Well, I certainly certainly do. I, I read a lot of scientific journals. Uh, I, I read the New Journal of Me- New England Journal of Medicine, the Journal of the American Medical Association. I uh, I watch public television a lot. I I trust them. Uh, I uh, I don't get my news from uh, social media, uh, and I I have gotten increasingly distrustful of email groups that. <clears throat> have my name and send me things that are just outrageously wrong. And, uh, and yet many people are addicted to that and they obviously spend most of their day just uh, arguing issues for which there's no factual basis. So I, I think that uh, uh, good solid newspapers are good, good appropriate mainstream television is good, but one should avoid the uh, unscientific uh, conspiracy theories that are just everywhere this day, these days. So as we wrap up over the past hour, we've gone through a lot and you've recommended really easy, practical things people consider. So just summarizing, what are just like the top few things you would recommend listeners do? In addition to the hand-washing, the physical distancing, and maybe wearing masks when you go out. But when they're home, what would you recommend? What are just some additional simple things they can focus on? Well, if you're home and you don't have infection in your home, I think that the things that one can do are don't worry. Don't be so anxious that you can't sleep at night because that's going to increase your vulnerability to infection. Eat a healthy diet. Don't go extreme one way or the other. Be aware of foods that are good for you foods that are not so good for you. Eat a balanced diet. Don't go extreme one way or the other. Get adequate sleep. Keep in touch with family and friends, especially older people that may be lonely and and by themselves. Uh, Give them a phone call, send them an email, that sort of thing. Uh, We'll get through this, but in the meantime, people should not make themselves ill with worry when there's there's clearly reason to be concerned about the infection. But if a person takes reasonable steps to avoid exposure, all the things we've talked about, social distancing, stay at home, don't go to large gatherings, no matter what the situation is, until this is over. And then don't worry excessively, because we'll get through this and life will go on. Thank you so much. I really appreciate you taking the time and for all of your years of public service for for public health. Thank you very much. I hope you and your family stay healthy. Thank you. We're going to do our best. Take care. We're going to practice the precautionary principle. Great. Thank you. Us too. Well, I mean, as a mom, it's hard to quarantine myself. Oh, of course it is. And good luck. You seem to be recovering. So I hope you recover completely and don't don't infect the family in the meantime. Just think about this. You'll be immune, so you won't have to worry any longer when you go out. But how seriously concerned should I be for my kids? I think you should uh, be cautious, but not super concerned. Most children, if they're infected, uh, don't have severe disease. I think you yeah. can't give up the role of mom completely, but you should certainly take reasonable precautions. There's a stress of, you know, when they started to hug me when I was sick, I thought, no, I can't, you know, and, and then I got 
better. And there's just the stress of my mom won't touch me. And I was afraid to wear a mask and scare them. So there is stress from doing what's recommended as a mother of three kids. So I thought maybe just them feeling emotionally secure and us still feeling connected might be worth the risk of them being infected. I what think do you you're think? absolutely right. It's all, okay. always risk versus benefit. And having okay. some caution, but not buying love. Thanks for listening. Podcast show notes can be found at my website at nontoxicliving.tips. To more easily listen to other episodes, please subscribe to the Practical Non-Toxic Living Podcast. And if you'd like to support it, then please like it and share it. Until next time.